For so many representatives of the universities, uh, the university. I deeply appreciate uh, what you have said, and uh, I also uh, once I'm accompanied on my visit to Austria by uh, the Minister for Europe, Thomas Mann, indeed by the Secretary General of my own, the Orsonutron, by Secretary General of the Department of Foreign Affairs, and many, many, many others, on behalf of. Uh, all of you uh, who have been so kind and generous in your remarks of welcome, Mila uh, Buikas, uh, which uh, in, uh, in Irish uh, is uh, my deepest thanks. So, Rector of Distinguished Colleagues, Ambassadors, and Friends, and Students, which are very important to me, it's a very great pleasure to always to get back in, to, to, in a university where. I've had some of the most rewarding uh, period of my life uh, as a university teacher. I should say too, uh, all of that time now in memory too, both as a student in Ireland and in the United Kingdom and the United States and as a teacher in these different places, I was always conscious that nobody of my family uh, uh, attended a university. In fact, second-level education wasn't generally available in Ireland. And it's something that is very important to me in relation to the role of the universities, not just in terms of their access, but their ability to be able to resonate with the origins and life of those that they welcome uh, to a place of study. I'm very pleased to be here at the Centre for Irish Studies at the University of Vienna. We, all of us who have been travelling on this visit, are enormously privileged to be visiting a city of such outstanding culture, heritage and beauty. And indeed for the reception that we have received from the representatives of state, and we're here at the invitation of President Alexander van der Bellen, and uh, he couldn't have been warmer in his reception. I think the Centre for Irish Studies has been well represented, has been introduced, and it is the largest Irish Studies department in continental Europe. It is a hub for postgraduate teaching, but I do want to thank the Rector and all of the university leaders and the staff and students who are present today. I am very pleased for those who are studying under the Erasmus scheme. The Erasmus scheme is the great success of the European Union. I remember some years ago when I became president first, pointing out that there were over a million babies that had been born to Erasmus students. <laughs> <laughs> and I often think of, in where this, if you like, when you think of the energy of life that was able to cross borders and people studying, listening to each other's languages, stories and literature. And indeed, uh, lest uh, you get carried away, 
I, I'm really going to be speaking uh, this morning about one of the great failures of Europe, and that it's failure to deal adequately with both the promise, the necessity, and the space of culture. And that is why I have decided to type what I have to say, the future of Europe, the role of culture. Because I believe that we are in the middle of a set of reflections and discussions, including one formally described as the future of Europe. And I want to, to go back, if you like, to a debate of which I was a part some time ago. I was president of the Council of Culture Ministers of the European Union in 1996. I was the first Minister for Arts, Culture and the Guild in Ireland. It was a time of an intense debate where a great deal was lost, and I want to say a few words about that. It was the time when the largest attack on the concept of public service broadcasting came. Europe lost, Berlusconi won. I think the newcomer across as well in relation to other areas. Here in Austria, we were the last country to make a defence of the fixed book agreement, which would have enabled academic books, poetry books, to be in the bookshops of bookshops. The commodification of even the book was afoot and so forth. And we had a debate, and I'll turn to it in a moment, and that debate I participated in after I ceased to be minister. There was a debate taking place in New Zealand and, uh, and Australia between two professors, Professor, Tr uh, Professor Trisby, and it is a really straight question. Uh, and the, uh, Michael Volkler was the other was at the other side of the debate, and it was about the relationship between economy and culture. Professor Trisby held the view: economics is practical, real, tangible; it is rational. Culture, on the other hand, is soft, emotional, incapable of being pent down or so. Michael Volkwin, which I return later, replied and really suggested in many cases. He was fast seeing what he wrote in the 1990s. He said it is the other way around. It is from the space of culture, respect of culture, the different forms of economy can come, including forms of economy that are not rapacious on the natural world, that are able to combine issues of social equity, moral sensibility, anti-ecology and responsibility. And this debate was a debate of the 1990s. And I often thought afterwards about the period between then and today, about what is the quality of the debate uh, in relation to the cultural space, the relationship between cultural economy and ecology in the European Union. And it is the young people, this is why we welcome Erasmus students, they have brought these issues back, even if we haven't recovered the debate on culture. Most references by formal people speaking about culture, they usually begin with saying that Jean Monnet said if I was doing it all again I would have begun with culture. Because I'm in a university I can say this, no one has ever found that quotation in Monnet's work. But the point is, if it sounded good and did no harm, why not use it? I want to say something as well, reference was made in the introduction to me. 
I say to this to, to the students, who, many of whom who have been experiencing their university experience uh, by Zoom. I remember the day I came into the university going through the gates. I remember that people like us who weren't in universities before and all of the other things like that. How important it was to have the sense of the university itself where the walls had come down a bit, the gates were more open and so forth. And that university experience is incredibly important. It is what I call, if you like, not just the sucking into oneself of information, but it is all of the possibilities of the chances of serendipity which will be thrown up by the encounters and by the engagements as much as by the words written or heard. Oscar Wilde described the beauty of that lecture education as not just a space for thinking and the exploration of concepts, but as he put it, to play gracefully with ideas. So I wish you well as you return to what I hope will be the fullness of the experience of the university. And may I hope as well that no advantage will be taken in the universities of Europe to suggest that you can substitute for the extraordinary experience that there exists between the teacher and students and between the curiosity of mind and engine. A battle, I'm afraid, that will have to be fought because there is a kind of a technological reductionism in the suggestion that because we did extra in COVID, we will be able to continue. Erasmus is one of the great successes, and as I mention it, it is of course associated with distinguished Irish Commissioner Peter Sutherland who initiated the Erasmus programme. I'm aware that the Institute of Irish Studies, and I do think that the future of Irish Studies is indeed going to be interdisciplinary. It will have to look contextually at the issues in relation uh, to politics and in relation to sociology and, and, and so on. Sometimes enough has been knocked out of the text, I think. And, but at the same time, what is very interesting in relation to the great distinguished work, uh, which is, uh, of course, it was initiated here by Professor Dr. Werner Huber, who died only just some six, seven years ago, and which is now continued indeed, indeed by Dr. Dieter Fuchs. We in Ireland, uh, and now coming to a point, you make reference to something I'm working on myself in relation, uh, I'm interested in uh, the view from below, uh, the civil war in Ireland, and those who were on what is perceived as the losing side in Northern Ireland, and who were in jail, and what was their reaction, for example, when they, uh, when they heard uh, that a surrender had been arranged, and some one of them referred to their incarceration as a kind of purgatory where you are made to suffer for a while before you emigrated to America. Emigration to America was not possible, of course, for many, because you needed a permit from the IRA, and indeed this was not changed by Mr. de Valera until 1925. In this area, in many, many cases, there is an Irish story from below. There is a literature from below that has to enter the canon of studies and so on. And then again, there is the issue in relation to many of the young people here will be familiar with the, with the Irish language. 
Irish language in the circumstances I have just been speaking about, for example, in the incarceration of the period of the Civil War. One of the most interesting things that scholars have Joyce and scholars, and certainly scholars of, of, of Beckett and Flannel Bryan, is there's a greater freedom in the diaries and the conversations in the Curra between the people who were speaking in Irish in relation to matters of sexuality. They weren't as actually repressed, as beaten down, as forced in a way to have taken into themselves the sinfulness of the body and the near impossibility of salvation outside of the very narrow version that HEP was now effectively going to be the influence on the major institutions of the state. Returning to my last, as it were, the Irish, I think, when I hear the word diaspora in a way, I prefer the word exilic myself because it's easier in relation to literature. There is an exilic in the physical sense, and there is an exilic in the inner sense, as is so well manifested in the work of Beckett, as indeed noted by Dr. Van Huber in his work. This year is the course of the 100th anniversary of, of Ulysses, if you have heard. And indeed, I want to thank you for the kind remarks uh, uh, to, to my dogs, and I'm sure Gary Owen would, would have, uh, have appreciated them as well, but perhaps he wouldn't have put it quite so elegantly. Uh, I am also conscious that it is important to something that Stephen Joyce said to me once, an excessive interest in Ulysses was distracting attention from what he felt to be some of the other work of James Joyce. We are meeting at terrible times after, in the midst of, a pandemic that will not go away fast enough, war, the risk of climate catastrophe. And also, as well as that, maybe it is in these circumstances that a return to the thread of art, art that might bring us together is particularly appropriate. I think that Austria and Ireland are indeed Austria at the centre of the European Union, and Ireland with its mobile and all the rest of it. I think that in the introduction we stressed that the importance of spirit in Ireland is important. The early connections, for example, there isn't really a connection between the later forms of clericalism, centuries later, and that which inspired the monasticism that led to the labour of manuscripts just in the early part of the medieval period, during which those as St. Columbanus came to Austria. Our connections include the Irish monk Hormon, martyred at Stockerau near Venn in 1012, and to this day is venerated as an important national saint. In the 12th century, the Irish monks founded the, the Schottenstift Benedictine Abbey, where I hope to visit. Indeed, the manuscripts of one I should tell you, they're talking about images that are at Morris and Oteron. One of the manuscript of one of the most famous poems from early Ireland, the 9th century Pangor Born, is now preserved in St. Paul's Abbey in the Lavantown in southern Austria. And I have to say, a very fine sculpture by German, by Imogen Stewart, is now housed in Aris of Oteron. Really, very much an, an, 
an achievement of my wife Sabine and all others. And it is, it is there now, if you visit Oris and Oudron, you will see Pangorbon and his <coughs> I think as well. So we have a rich shared history. And we certainly have one that has resulted in ever closer ties, cemented by our joint European Union membership. There are things that we share in the membership of the European Union, and we are also countries to describe ourselves as neutral countries. That gives us a perspective of mind that I have been speaking in formal meetings over the last couple of days, an immense opportunity to give a very distinctive contribution, to seek, as we all try to seek, to bring an end to the terrible killings, the violence, the breaches of international law, the humanitarian scandals that are taking place, and from which none of us in Europe or who believe in Europe can most ever suggest there be any impunity. But responding and making sure there is no means that we must take our actions through the multinational system on behalf of us all, not simply on behalf of the strong. Austria and Ireland today view ourselves, as I've said, at the heart of, uh, at the heart of Europe. We have taken different paths to the European Union, but I think in both of our cases it has been an influence for the good. In the Irish case it broke open a whole set of categories that had been sealed in relation to rights. Rights of women, rights of children, rights of education, rights of equality, right, consciousness in relation uh, to, the, to, the, to the environment. In fact, our hope, if there is, past the darkness, it is for the combination of the consciousness of, for example, environment, social progressive thought, and also, as well as that, equality, and gender equality, and dignity, the words that we have put into our international statements. And I think that this merging of these consciousness, not to achieve any one strand, but all of it and creating, that's what the debate, I believe, needs in relation to the future of Europe. Uh, I think uh, I look at Medlar and others describe the Europe that seems to me to be a Europe that is a kind of I describe it like eventing. It has events. It has a crisis. It gets over it, and it prefers for the next one. And this is a kind of a sufficient. That is insufficient. Also, I turn again to another one, is that the main thing I have to speak about today is the relationship between culture. And the, between Europe, the future of Europe, and the role of culture. I've already referred to that debate that took place uh, in, about, in the 1990s. And I think uh, what has struck me when I was at the meetings in 1996, chairing the meetings, and so about how market forces had in fact really influenced the media. I have already referred to the book trade. I've referred to relation to public service broadcasting. I was setting up, seeking to have set up a, a television station that deal with the Irish language, Television Agoelga, during this period. It was such a swimming against the tide. I uh, distinctly remember all the railing that people had about how in fact actually the media belonged to the market. The notes of Lord Reed, for example, of the BBC in its day, to education, to inform and entertain and so forth. That was long gone. 
And it was also was reminding me of a powerful speech I had heard from Raymond Williams, the very last one he gave in Scotland. And it was he had made a suggestion about be the arrow, not the target, he said. There is something I used later for speaking to young people, the distinction between being a passive consumer of what is regarded as a homogenized set of facts, entertainment, distractions, and being an active participant in relation to culture. And this is a debate that you couldn't get at the time. It was dying in the language as people spoke in a way. I kept thinking of Max Weber's remarks in that one of his fundamental texts where he says, I sometimes think it is not the promise of spring that beckons, but the icy cold fingers of bureaucracy. And I think in a way it would be easy now to blame the... Uh, I think people regarded the European <coughs> Union as a whipping pie. No, the icy cold fingers were all over the different participating peoples and nations in a way. And in a way, I suggest to the Irish Institute of, the Institute of Irish Studies that it is time to contest some fundamental assumptions in relation to modernity. I'm unhappy with the use of it in many ways. I think it is the source of necessary conflict, and there is an arrogance in it, and really curiously, when I look for where it is in the literature, it comes out of the tail end of justifying imperial literature. They couldn't, for example, as those nationalists in my time as president had been asked to critique their nationalism. But the greatest difficulty I had in anything I said in public was when I suggested that we should ask empires to critique their imperialism. And the mind of empire is alive and well. And indeed, some of the most destructive tendencies in relation to those who are authoritarians now, they can root their experiences in imperialism because it is a new form of empire that they seek to do in the suppression of diversity, suppression of language of the other and the definition of the other as a source of fear. These are challenges uh, that are there. Uh, in relation to what the new scholarship must do, uh, I think, with energy. We have all paid a high price in Europe for the neglect of culture. Our mis Why did this happen? I think we also have misused culture, as I've said, commodification. Sigmund Bauman comes to mind, consumed in our consumption. I think as well, the marginalisation and the culture of the Europeans' presentation of itself. You know, it isn't a case of holding the meetings and having the family photograph and then saying, wouldn't it be nice to have someone play the violin? <laughs> in fact, this kind of residual marginal analysis is just what I have described it as, as insulted, frankly. I think what we mean by culture one is not speaking, I think, in terms of the arts only. What one is speaking about is the way of life of people, the customs, as I called about it, the recalled and imagined sensory experiences of the, of the body. I think as well, it is one speaks of culture in the, that sense 
as the spirit of the Europeans, but their ways of life, sense of home, place, region, history and imagination. And that was always the case. It is one of the reasons why the failure of regionalism within the European Union was such a tragic loss, because within those categories you could have been able to refute the suggestion that to have a sense of home and place and national region that you had, that you couldn't be European. The transcendence was in fact made possible by having a respect of culture. And I think I think one thing that struck me more and more recently, and it was the time when I was studying anthropology, social anthropology at Manchester University, is that how in the 19th century the colonising powers used anthropology to understand the people that they were dominating. It's not accidental that the majority of British anthropologists were lawyers who would begin analysing dispute resolution systems as a means of making your way into understanding the mechanisms of a community or a group. And yet when independence came, and after this in many cases, anthropology was not used by the liberated, the emancipated, to see how they would understand differences. Here they were on the continent of Africa, for example, with arbitrary lines drawn that took no account of difference of tribe or ethnicity or of language, the thousands of languages on the continent or whatever. And they asked the representative of Kenya recently at the Security Council and said, we had to try and get on with it. But anthropology, think of where we are now and the tragedy we're doing now of trying. If we had anticipated, if we had anticipated how your resolve how the differences in any of these categories can be abused and fire up a conflict uh, to, into terrible proportions. I think we must think uh, in relation to this. Um, we need anthropology. We need all the intellectual, moral impulse to understand culture. Could have been so useful in post-colonial circumstances in helping to recognise ethnic, linguistic and mythological influences, both shared and different. Anthropology, too, could have yielded contemporary times valuable insights on the balancing of linguistic rights and their importance to the Reich and, if you like, the other aspects of full participation in citizenship. But there were many reasons for this. Many of the reasons were, of course, that the experience, without going into detail, of the misconstruction of from those who followed Herder and Humboldt uh, and others, but there had been uh, the abuse of culture, there had been a distortion of myth and culture, there had been invoked by fascists, the suppression of identities of minorities, what would have end, ended the death camp and would cost the millions of lives, uh, loss of millions of lives. Culture also was curiously as well from the early days of the European Union was seen as so closely related to education that it was perceived as a possible space of contestation, of ideological manipulation. And it is very, very interesting in the history of Ireland, for example, when we come to think about it, is that, uh, if you like, after uh, the period of the 1920s, the vacuum that was created institutionally was very quickly occupied uh, by those who would have a particular uh, uh, view of life. As I mentioned earlier, the 
purveyors of the Jansenist heresy, the, the sinful body, the idea of this lesser status of women, the sheer abuse of women, the misogyny that was there, and this, these great cruelties and so forth that were not there, as I said, in the Aglish Kosnokta that was there prior to Cardinal Cullen. It was in the 19th century that Irish people were told you should have shoes on your feet when you were visiting church and also that all of the sermons should be homogenised. I think the culture, therefore, was seen as an appropriate area for subsidiarity associated with education. Thus, you see the remnants of this where you have people now teaching in the United Kingdom proper history that will give proper respect to the empire and all those good things we left after us in the pink parts of the Atlas. I think the Council of Europe, too, was another one. It was said, well, really, culture has been done in the Council of Europe, and you have a bigger lot in there, and they could have kind of handled it in a, in a way. It is to the credit of the Council of Europe that, indeed, they use that emphasis to produce rights uh, affirmations. But I think, they saw, I think, the people dealing with culture in the European Union so the Council of Europe is someplace residual, gestural, rhetorical, performative. And anything performative is just full of danger. In fact, in the Institute of Irish Studies and other institutes, it is very interesting how, in fact, people, let us say, the ones for emphasis here in relation to, uh, in relation to a baker or in relation to a firm, the performative is, is what is regarded as the challenging. I think through the evolution of the European treaties, there, uh, this notion of, of subsidiarity was quite a deadly thing. It's one of the contributions of Jürgen Habermas that he said, instead of keeping something and regarding it as so precious that we don't want anyone to look at it and be defensive, what if we started defining subsidiarity in a totally different way as a, as a sharing of excellences of performance in different ways. Say, we do this, for example, in relation to access to music education, and we'd like to share it with you. It would have been a turning around of subsidiarity, and that would be relevant for the future of Europe. I think he suggested the breadth of vision required for that, I'm afraid, wasn't available. Europe itself, what is Europe? Who can be called Europe? And what can be called Europe? Europe has always been a mosaic of cultures interacting with each other. Languages, literature, the source too of experiments in adventurism and colonization that often required the suppression of indigenous cultures and rationalizations of empire at home. Even if we have to take the land off them in the end of the day because they wouldn't know how to use it. In the same way as if they will in fact have achieved dignity and respect when they speak our language, but more importantly, they must stop using their own. I realise I'm president of a country, I speak Irish practically every day, of a language that was forbidden. And it just takes something. And again, this is again where I'm working on the ethics of memory at the minute. How it is important to be free to remember that that happened. The notion that, for example, we should all have to be taking amnesia tablets every morning to just say that we, there is no such thing as this. These are realities. It happens in many other places in the world where cultures were suppressed, 
where today, as I'm speaking here, languages are dying in, uh, in Africa, languages are dying. And although I believe myself that in Latin America, for example, we're about to enter the best decades in relation to respect for indigeneity. I think that in relation to uh, all of this, uh, I, I, when my paper will go into it in, in, in more detail, but I think what happens in, if you uh, don't take culture seriously, when you see in, in, this, in this broad sense, is that you get a set of regressions to particular manifestations now behind the borders, borders of nations and, and so forth, where if you like, uh, you have to struggle then to achieve any equalities that are necessary, be it in terms of gender or elsewhere. The most incredible thing was, of course, is that while in fact culture was being kept in its subsidiarity definition, it was open season in relation <coughs> to the influence of the market. You could have really, uh, what is fascinating in the history of ideas is the way during the Reagan Thatcher period, uh, Friedrich van Hayek is taken out of the press and he's given a dusting down and people shake off some of the things and stuff that had been rejected many, many decades earlier is suddenly the only way. There is no alternative. People, you didn't need to do anything. You just needed to be indifferent. You just needed to be passive in a cultural sense to allow your existence now to be changed. They wouldn't be upset by any radical ideas. There wouldn't be any great energy in it because you just switched it on and listened to it. And as you became a homogenized purveyor of mediocrity, uh, this did. And uh, I, I think that, therefore, the notion about it all is this. That's why you got more and more desperate as you got the people to do a bit of step dancing as well after the concert, as well as the fiddle. I think that when I was president of the Council of Culture Ministers, I saw, if you like, how all of this was working out. There was a moment, for example, uh, where it was reversed briefly by Prime Minister Prodi in Italy, only to be, uh, when Mr Berlusconi returned, to have the same stuff back all over again. And it led actually the actual meeting of the Council of Culture Ministers to the resignation of the representative of Italy. Today, the relationship between culture and economy is sometimes now in a kind of a halfway house of definitions. Uh, we in Irish, we use the word crohiocht for creativity. But people don't really speak about creativity in the widest sense of old and middle literatures or whatever. People are using language about the, the creative industries. And there's even actually usage of a concept called the creative class. Now, I think that raises issues that people have to decide within the future of the European Union. Are they speaking about creativity as in an individual sense, or are they speaking about creativity in a social sense? I always thought that battle about it. This is the notion of those who say that, in fact, not only might your jewellery be unsafe and your forests if you let a certain kind of people into certain kind of performances. It lowers the tone and so on. There never was any collision between genius and its expression and allowing people to have the experience of music and dance and writing and all of these things. Creativity defines socialism, that's your test as to whether you're in a democracy or not.
Uh, it is, we can do if we want to in the history of culture. Look at what elitisms left after us. Uh, that's fine, they are achievements. But it is an issue, and I would like to see the debate on the future of Europe to take on these issues publicly. I might say just one thing in relation to the new circumstances in which we find ourselves with the new media. You will recall that there is a very old debate in the history of publishing in relation to, for example, the right of reply, the right and so forth. Where is the same guaranteed space in the virtual, in the, in the electronic media at the present time? Where, who is making the case for saying there will be, have to be a space where citizens can have recourse in the same way as we had public service broadcasting, which we made operate within certain criteria. We assumed that they did their best, but equally at the same time. Where is the equivalent context, con, con, uh, compa, concept in relation to the new regime? And therefore, when people speak about it, I myself was Minister for Film, and in many cases I'm aware of the jobs that can be created in the area of film and in relation to all of its, in the audiovisual and so on. But that is not the sole reason for, in fact, privileging our understanding the cultural space. What I found most exciting in it myself was the sheer way in which people were getting joy out of delivering their energy for the period of life that they had in something that was quite exciting. But I saw the transition. The first meeting I attended of culture ministers was Melina Mercury was still alive, still smoking her cigarettes. She said it was too late to stop. But when I think of what I have just been describing and the mind of that great Greek woman who had in fact the idea of the cities of culture and so forth, we had come a very, very long way. And then you come on, if you like, to where the ghost of Max Faber comes back occasionally. And you read the 2010 Green Paper from the EU, unlocking the potential of cultural and creative industries. It's rather like as where I come from, people would say, rattling the old bag at culture in case there's anything we haven't ransacked yet. <laughs> That's a kind of a summary I would have about it all. And it's as bad as that, the kind of pathos of mediocre. And try and be understanding about all of this. It is important. We gain an awful lot from consensus and being tolerant about it. But what is missing is the significance of the foundational value of culture part of the basic services that make life possible in relation to all of the different areas. I remember the argument about l'exception culturelle. When I was minister, there was two countries still ploughing away, trying to say we shouldn't have the commodification of them. France was one and myself, Ireland was the other. France then left the field, there were three culture ministers in the space of 18 months, and the one in the middle decided, we continued on. I still believe in it, and I think that the debate about the non-commodification of cultural practice and the right to cultural participation is so important. A participatory culture is the very opposite of any narrow individualism, an individual that stresses as it does a personal satisfaction, but culture is a process a tool for redefinition. Yes, drawing on heritage, but continually evolving and being reworked with the new energies and artefacts that are available. 
So as we consider the future of Europe, we are challenged, I believe now, to invent an agenda for living which defines the cultural space as wider than the economic space. We're back to that little argument which just started. It is the cultural space that makes many forms of integrated economy possible. It is not ever to be in kind of a residuum of one version of the economy that is producing uh, unsatisfactory results. I think as well, what we must uh, uh, also realise is that if we, uh, culture, I have said, is a process, yes, it is drawing on legacies of cultural practices. And I think if we don't pay attention to it, we leave, if you like, a repertoire available for its abuse and that can, in fact, be invoked as sources of new tensions in society. I said it is uh, incredibly important as well and this is a bigger challenge yet again, is that you cannot, the public administration required in relation to culture is very different to managing other aspects of the economy. As somebody who did set up a department of culture, one of the biggest difficulties is in fact realising that it takes a special set of skills to handle the sensitivity of what you are doing. And this notion about it, I know that there are thousands of courses now on leadership. You could get leadership on how to get from here to there, leadership from here, leadership from this. And leadership is really, it, is, it has actually taken a turn in recent times because it has now quite uh, an authoritarian streak in it. Uh, uh, nearly most people will say I was in charge of all that and I was in charge of this size of a budget and so forth the, the fact of the matter is we live one life I think it, we need to think about the specific challenges of administration in the cultural area uh, it isn't a case of what is that phrase that you hear now in the vision when theatres are in trouble. It's all a matter of bums on seats. There's nothing very uh, inspiring about such a remark. <laughs> and it, it doesn't do much. I say this. Uh, now, I think as well, there are new aspects in relation to science and technology, which are going to provide us with new opportunity. But the issue summarising this is to identify democratic participatory empowering policies to ensure access to culture for the public at large and to a better knowledge of other cultures to encourage intercultural dialogue and experiences and i did say want to say pay tribute to people from previous centuries who put up all those bandstands all around europe and around the world and that was the other thing that has happened since the 1990s was the shrinking of the public spaces of culture the limiting of the spaces where you could have performance. And as they gradually took over and being colonised, people began using phrases like linear parking. This is a strip of green in front of a building, and this is supposed to be a linear park. And you could have, you could look out at it through your north-facing balcony, if you like, and, and then when you had recovered from the pneumonia, you could go inside and you go to hospital. But the fact of the matter is, it is just so important, public spaces for performance and where people could, in fact, uh, uh, also interact in different ways. It is where cultures meet. 
I think that Turain is one of those who has been writing in the same way as I have been quoting Williams, speaking about social passivity in the face of mass commercialization. I've said enough about it. But I think too, as I come into where I want to say something that is important, it is important to recognise the multiplicity of sources of influence. Earlier we've heard, for example, about the influence of the Irish in the early period, let us say, in, here in Austria, up as far as the 14th century, in relation to spiritual work and, and, and whatever. But how often we're hearing that Europe is in fact formed in particular from a particular set of sources. What about, for example, how the Greek world was saved by the Islamic community in Spain before that they were expelled by, by, by Isabel and, and, and others? There are multiple influences in Europe. And when people speak about our Europe, it is very important to actually just say, are they speaking about the Europe they want, or rather something that was in fact the Europe that is. The Europe that is and will be, will be a Europe of multiple influences, and it will be diverse, and it is important that it be so. And in that too, in relation, I've been speaking of multiple influences, it is the primacy of the performative. I've already been speaking about the distinction between active and passive culture. The performative is so important. And I know you have an emphasis very, very much on, uh, on Beckett and on Glenn others. But surely at the heart of their work was the importance of the, the performative. I think what we need to, to do is that if we actually begin debating culture with all of its different inclusions, it enables us to achieve something we have lost. It enables us to recover a certain degree of cohesion and make our way through that cohesion to a trust that is very necessary. I think I mentioned Habermas earlier, saying that he suggested how we should use subsidiarity differently. I should say as well that Habermas also said the notion of modernity itself in both cultural and social terms. There are some parts of post-modernity that people speak about. I think I described it controversially once and something I wrote is that at times it can descend into organised gossip. Uh, I think in many ways, if in the case of, let us say, Irish experience, because I'm speaking in sort of Irish studies, the Irish people are forced to be modern several times. You had to modernise to adjust. You had to modernise even in relation to your own language. You're now using another language, English. And it is Miles McCorpolid who said, the tragedy about Irish failing or Irish failed is that it would be disastrous for the English language because there wouldn't be that much left. Now, that was mild, but the point is, I think, it is important. Uh, it, it, all of this uh, is important, the notion of modernity. Because if you are to be able to deal with uh, African and Asian culture and so forth, you need to be able to critique your, your notion of modernity. I know now I'm coming to the end and to say we are coming out of a terrible times. During COVID, I have said already, I wrote a letter to the late David Sassoli during COVID about cultural workers. I said to him, I, what I said, culture, I, how important it was for cultural workers. The, I said it is important, Mr Sassoli, that culture is made safe for the future. 
and for sharing with the world, and that we salute the creative expression of those artists in the European Union. Spending on culture is investment in citizenship with a powerful democratic dividend, and even a narrow utilitarian version of the economy, it has a huge yield. So we, I suggest we, in the debate on the future of Europe, turn to culture, see about debating it for, for like socially, culture socially, avoiding exclusive or elitist definitions. And then I think in this issue, when we are debating the new forms of economy that are coming, Michael Volkerling, that I have quoted earlier, he said, first it will require a reconnection of economic policy with its cultural roots to produce a rich holistic discourse in which cultural knowledge is a necessary element and in which both economic and cultural priorities are reconciled. Second, it will call for a role for culture that links concepts of citizenship and community within a pluralist state operating in a globalised framework. I say something that is important to us here. <coughs> Since I was last here, in, 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 uh, we have, Irish has been recognised as a working language. Ireland, I think, is a firm believer, uh, very, very much. In it's very interesting about the Irish when they're surveyed. They're rarely uh, less than eighty-five percent in favour of Europe. I believe that that approach towards Europe, of seeing Europe in an international way, in an open, inclusive, equitable form of multilateral engagement, is incredibly important. The values that we share, it's in all the international text that is important. Human dignity, freedom, democracy, equality, the rule of law, respect for human rights within the EU and around the world. And therefore then, I say this, I think often of Charles Taylor's book on the man's struggle to be authentic. Authenticity is what is now needed on the European street. I think this is very important not only in the way we speak about what we're doing and discussing with the future of Europe, but we mustn't abandon the European street to those who would abuse culture, exploit homophobia, racism, versions of the other, and fill them full of fear. I know we have all, how can we almost speak when the, what is happening in the Ukraine, an invasion that uh, where has to be condemned, but in addition to what is happening and in the screens in front of us, the abuses of human body, the abuses of life, the destruction of civilian habitation, all of this. It presents a great challenge to our international institutions. It needs to be verified, it needs to be done so independently with credibility and in a way that will stand on sure that there is no impunity. But it must come through the multilateral system. It must come through so that we're doing this, this in, on behalf of, of all of humanity. I think as well as in relation to solidarity, let's celebrate good things when they happen, the doors in Europe that have been thrown open to those fleeing from Ukraine. I think made, may we learn from it, build on it and extend on it. And remember, we call it a solidarity and we are right to celebrate it when we've done it. It was a solidarity that we didn't fully achieve in relation to vaccination. 
And it's a solidarity now, too, uh, that mustn't be trimmed or, if you like, uh, changed in relation to any form of qualification or exclusion, I believe myself. It's an act of political solidarity, too, that's born out of a European memory of suffering imposed and suffering felt. But it is also encouraging to think, too, in it all, that it's calling up a kind of personal and social empathy that is in the human spirit after in a continent that has experienced war too often. I think we must be in the vanguard of those who want and will claim the right to speak of peace. It is difficult these days to speak of peace. There is nothing soft in being, speaking of peace, and one isn't a wimp to speak of peace. And at my age and all of the rest of it, I think of all those marches we went on to actually achieve an end to nuclear armaments, to achieve peace and so forth. And it is, isn't it somewhat morally outrageous to suggest that the only way to achieve peace is to go to war for peace? The fact we must be able, in after all our present difficulties, and we are ones that are urgent, where the killing should stop today, if we can, where you must have ceasefires and humanitarian corridors, meaningful discussions on, on security, a stop to the killing. But frankly, we are in danger of hearing, if you like, there is at the moment an imbalance in favour of a bellicose militaristic language, and I think we need to be careful. We will need to speak about peace, because curiously, again, in relation to everything else I've said so far, it is when you have an adequate space of culture and an appropriate set of discourses within it that you can best speak of peace. And the union, you know, every now and again, you know, when we say lovely Irish phrase, he lost the run of himself. Well, I often think of that when I think of periods when the European Union lost the run of itself, and particularly those hegemonic forces within it that were announcing matters such as the end of history. Francis Fukuyama saying, not just the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such, that is the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. Imagine, uh, uh, without blinking an eyelid, and when I looked back, I was writing at that particular time, so few in the academy distance themselves from that stuff. I think we cannot abandon diplomacy. I finish by saying this. It's very easy to say, should we have done more in the last eight years? Perhaps we should have seen what was coming. I think as well. But I think we need diplomacy. It is all we have. The international institutions. It is a case of making the United Nations stronger. It is full of weaknesses and it has flaws. But it is our United Nations. And we need international diplomacy because we need to talk to each other. We in Ireland know in relation to our own peace process the times when people couldn't be in the same room with each other. But because there was another text to be rejected or bracketed or perhaps half accepted or amended, they kept coming back. We need the space of diplomacy. 
We need the original contributions to diplomacy. And that was what was very, very much what I had in mind when I say all of those with different kinds of experience, including Ireland and all of the others, must try and seek to make whatever contribution they can so that we break the deadlock that is there at the present time in relation to, the, to, the, to Russia and the Ukraine. They cannot be just abandoned to keep, if you like, leaving the, 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 the room. They need, we need it. Conflict resolution around the world needed. It needed some outside contributions at times, and it needed space, and it needed suggestion. I want to finish by saying perhaps something that so many of the young people in the room um, will make what I have to say redundant. I hope they do. There is a real danger that because of where we are now in its urgency, because of what is in front of us in terms of the terrible abuses which at first I said there should be no impunity, that we would, we have remembered that we would forget the good moments that we had. There was a joy in Europe at the Paris meeting when we just when in relation when we achieved that. There was a joy all over the world when we were beginning to be able to talk about uh, sustainable development. We were beginning to look at Africa differently. The countries were coming on to the different international institutions. It's gone from the pages now, but all these issues are still there. And the reason, if you like, where we must get out, get from where we are, and have a European Union that is able to not be just inward-looking, but outward-looking, is so that we ensure that, that this merging of consciousness in relation to new forms of economy, social security, the basic things that we need, food sufficiency, all of these things, ecological responsibility, are able to be merged and find their way again on the front pages. At the present time, the lives of 3.3 billion people out of today's global population of 7.9 are suffering from the consequences of climate change. There are measures there. Because I have been making a case for the space of culture doesn't mean that I don't applaud the great advances that have been made and the possibilities they've created by, for example, the European Green Deal, which offers a transition to a new form of economy. I think as well there is new writing there. My work, my speeches quote Mariana Massacotta and Ian Goff and others. But what is needed is a paradigm shift. But the paradigm shift must happen. In, it must be supported by the people and in our thinking. The questions that we're asking, really, is are we, what are we speaking of towards the future of Europe? Is it a social Europe, constructed, as I've said, with ecological responsibility in times of crisis? Or is it something more narrow, something more economic and, and monetary? And we must be able to speak to each other as members of the Union. Quite frankly, if you keep speaking of creditor and debtor nations, and you keep speaking of strong economies and Mediterranean economies, and if then you lose the run of yourself altogether, and you begin, rather like was said in times about the Irish famine, some people are just simply slow. The European Union, if it is, it must make sure that it is not an oxymoron, that a union is a union where all voices matter. And I think all voices matter in constructing what might be a mind of Europe in relation to international affairs. I quote an old-fashioned document in one of my speeches, really. It is the Ventitania Accord, written by Spinelli and Paolo Rossi in their prison in, 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 in Italy. 
Now, they would go on to be federalists and so on. But what they have at the top of the union is, in fact, a Europe where there will never be war again. And they mentioned, it mentioned as well where their states will recognise each other and they will recognise each other for their peace that they have with each other. And it was international in, 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 in that sense. And I think that when I think of, of Ernesto Rossi and, 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 and Spinelli, it's a very interesting. That it's a very di there are many origin points for the European Union. Theirs is one. Coal and steel is another. But quite frankly, there is a lot of coal and steel in the thinking, in the language, and in the discussion, and in the discourse of the European Union. How, to what degree have we moved on from coal and steel? How near are we, if you like, towards actually getting to the edge of the verges of what I might mean in the entertaining court? I think all of this is very important. I think it's a debate that will enable us to re-engage with the European street. So I hope that beyond the recession, beyond Brexit, beyond Covid, beyond the murder that is taking place in the Ukraine and so on, that we will be able to return, if you like, it, holding on to diplomacy as our best hope. We cannot allow it to fail. I think we must sustain humanitarian relief, but we must set about peace building in the medium and long term. We must understand Europe in all its diversity and complexity if we're to strengthen and ensure that Europe is not just a union of conversations between capital cities, but one in which the street understands that we're about to embark on a whole set of new ways of living together. And yes, the decision-making process of the European Union is complex and difficult, and it has been used as a whipping bar. But at the same time, it is a place that has been informed by diplomacy, rationality and the rule of law. So we must muster all our strength, I think, be strong among those who wish for peace, equality, justice, ecological harmony. And I think that the demand for peace, like those people who marched before, it must return to our streets. But I think as we in Ireland look back, reflecting on a half a century of the European Union, Austria 25 years, yes, there was a Europe that had been blighted by the abuses of power, empire and wars. But also there was a union that was making progress in places where there were great clouds of repression, great clouds of exclusion. And we owe much to the European Union in relation to areas of health and relations of equality, of rights, working practices, ecology, the environment and so many others. There is a Europe that can flourish in this new way without the insatiable exploitation of natural resources and consumption. There is a Europe that is beyond the legacies of the cartel unaccountability. And I think the Europe we seek now must be one as well, in which the hateful rhetoric of previous times is replaced with energetic and joy, energy and joy, replaced with openness, inclusivity, cohesion and solidarity. Austria, at the heart of Europe, Ireland at the edge of Europe, both peoples strongly European, both committed to multilateralism, both interested in alternatives to, 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 to war, both countries with a long legacy within each and between of, in fact, cooperation in matters of culture and the spirit. 
I think it is a good place to be speaking of what might offer the citizens of Europe a real liberation and ever-enriching diversity of cultures, an ethical, sustainable model of economy in, han- in harmony with our vulnerable planet. Many thanks for listening.